Welcome to episode six of Terms of Service. And today we're talking about the law, about legal matters related to NFTs, more specifically into the crypto space a little bit more loosely. We're going to be talking with Erica Nirim, who is a lawyer who's been working and consulting with artists, collectors, uh, marketplaces, etc. And uh, since we are now in March 2023, if you are listening to us in the future, we can say that today there has been a new enthusiasm from regulatory entities to try to put some limitations around the way that the crypto and NFT transactions are being managed on various rights and restrictions related to NFT transactions. So we're going to be diving into all these topics, and we hope that this will shed some light on the situation that we're going through today. So let's get started. Today, we're very happy to have with us, Erica Nirim from Nomic Consulting, uh, based out of Chicago, I believe. Yes. Yeah, great. Thank so, you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for making the time. And I think today the the topic is going to be around uh, legal questions pertaining to NFTs and, and hopefully a little bit uh, DAOs as well. Uh, we should just uh, open this by saying that this is none of this is going to be legal or financial advice. Uh, if you are looking into legal help, you should find your own counsel or do your own research. This is really just for general interest. And uh, as a reminder, our podcast is really focused on the cultural industry and the arts industry. So we'll really be uh, not talking so much about topics related to DeFi or crypto investing, but really more uh, as, as it pertains to NFTs and to the arts in general. So uh, Erica, could you introduce yourself and give us a little bit about your background? Yes, my name is Erica Naren. I've been uh, an attorney, goodness, for longer than I'd like to admit, over a decade. Um, spent most of the formative years in a courtroom and really loved it. But I just realized about halfway through that that was not going to be where I'm going to spend the rest of my life. I think a lot of lawyers come to that conclusion around seven or eight years into uh, into litigation, intense litigation. Um, and then transitioned into investment banking um, and discovered NFTs. And I did. I think I would say around early 2019, um, I discovered blockchain and NFTs and just said, what is that thing over there? That's where I need to be. And spent the rest of the next two years really digging into NFTs and blockchain, reading everything I could get my hands on during the pandemic and emerged uh, sort of as an SME in that space, subject matter expert in that space, um, joined a very large crypto lending platform that subsequently, not long after I joined, uh, ended up going into bankruptcy, which really was an interesting turn of events because at least from a legal perspective and being on the regulatory team at that firm or at that company, was able to see the front line of where this space is going, what these regulators are really concerned about and how they treat these assets uh, from a frontline perspective. At that point, I decided that um, there was a lot of value in bringing that knowledge to the community and reignited Nomic Consulting, which had been around at that point for two, three years, but doing really kind of niche projects and just leaning into it and saying, okay, we'd like to service the community in a more specific way and brought on a business partner um, 
Walker Thisted, who's extraordinary um, and brilliant. And we together are building uh, a consulting firm that really can, can meet the needs of artists, institutions, businesses who are exploring tokenization, blockchain, and industry 4.0. And that was the birth of Nomic Consulting as it is today. So you work uh, with artists as well as with corporations. Uh, do you also work with collectors? Or could you tell us a little bit about the, the type of uh, issues that are brought up with, with your clients? Absolutely. Yes, we work with the gamut in the art world. I think what we realized around 2018, or I'm sorry, 2019, when we got into this space was that these things, these NFTs at the time, you know, which didn't have quite a negative connotation, these non-fungible tokens were really a tool. They were something that you could use to uh, either, for example, tokenize physical assets or create a link to a digital asset that meant that this token represented the single source of truth as it related to that object. Um, what we realized was that most people didn't really understand what they were, how they moved, how to really work with them, and also, for example, with collectors, how to collect them, institutions, how to collect them, how to receive them as gifts. So what at that point, what I did was really just learn all of the things around what that what this tool would entail. You know, if you if you consider this, you know, like a tool where you can use it for all these different things, also protections need to be in place. One exact specific example of that would be, for example, um, a collector who wants to collect this, but they don't have a digital wallet. So we would help them set up a digital wallet, give them the pros and cons of hot versus cold storage. Uh, now they have this piece, you know, this token in their wallet um, and they want to sell that token. Well, what happens at the end of the year when they file their taxes? What are the tax consequences? How does the IRS approach this? I should probably point out that I am American-based. And so a lot of the knowledge, at least for the art world that I worked in, was based on American law. Uh, we have worked internationally before, um, specifically for major arts institutions in Europe, but not for individual collectors in Europe as of yet, because those laws are so specific. But what we would do is, again, go back, going back to that collector in that example, talk about the tax implications, talk about the estate planning implications. For ultra high net worth collectors, often they are collecting with either a, a view towards donating their entire, the, the entirety of their collection to an institution and or to pass on that collection to their children. Well, how do you do that with digital assets? So all of these things could be applied to, to just... Um, collectors, but they could also go to the broader ecosystem, to the institutions. The same questions come up with each and every aspect of the art world. So that's sort of what we do in terms of coming in, assessing a project, assessing a, a piece of art, or assessing a, uh, you know, a gift, et cetera, and then advising on how best to handle those situations. So you, you said that you're uh, U.S.-based and that your knowledge is mostly applies to uh, U.S. law. Um one thing that's kind of crazy when you think about the crypto scene in general is that we we could say that um, cryptocurrencies are like internet money and that uh, we've sort of entered into a phase where everything that happens in the crypto field is by definition global, uh, which means that every then country or region has to set up their own rules on how to regulate it. Uh, which probably creates all kinds of complexities because if you are uh, based in a certain country and doing a, a crypto transaction with another country or an NFT exchange with another country, it must cause all kinds of questions as to 
which uh, legal rule you fall under. Uh, I was just wondering, in 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 your current view of the landscape, could you maybe outline the top issues that you see related to the fact that we're dealing with a global market uh, and and assets that are not located in any single place? They're just virtual. Um, and and what are the issues that that causes really from the point of view of this globality versus locality and 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 sort of local rules versus lack of let's say international consensus or international law? Well, I think that's a that's such a good question. It's also a it is the question really because there is no real clear understanding of what that looks like. I can give you a thousand things that we need to consider when when operating in a global ecosystem. And I think I'll I'll go back to one of the, the main talking points that Gary Gensler, the um, head of the SEC here in the United States, continues to say. I think there's a lot of talk that we need to rebuild everything from the ground up. And what Gensler often says is, no, you don't need to do that. There is infrastructure in place for the movement of goods and services on a global scale. We just need to understand how these tools fit into that global ecosystem. So we can look at the international art market. There are galleries from all over the world who travel all over the world and they bring physical pieces of art and they sell them to a global audience. The thing that NFTs do or this particular technology does is it creates a trail and it's an auditable trail. So I think the major question or the major thing that I'm seeing come up to answer your question is a couple, well, I'd say two different things. First of all, does the art world, art world really understand what they're doing by inviting this into uh, behind, behind the, the curtain, so to speak? Do they really understand the collateral consequences of what this means for their ecosystem? I think most people that have worked in the art world have, particularly the art market, the art market, let's differentiate the two, the art world and the art market. People have worked in the art market really know that a lot of these business deals happen in the financial equivalent of dark pools. They happen sort of behind the scenes. The information is never really kind of disseminated to the public. The uh, When a deal is sold at a gallery or like a, a piece is sold at a gallery and a deal is made, how much of that information is able to be disseminated to the public? A lot of collectors don't want their names uh, openly given to the sort of to the world about who bought what at what price or what's in their collection. Um, and so what this technology would potentially do is bring light to spaces where the art world does not necessarily want light to be shed. So this is the big problem I see from the front end is this system is coming. And I think, you know, the people who govern the way that goods and services, you know, move around the world are now, they now may have a tool to track all of this. And is this something that the art world and the art market really wants? That's a real big question that I think I haven't seen answered. Everybody's interested in this technology, but all the conversations I see that arise from the art world slash art market tend to be around the design itself or the profile picture projects, but not necessarily about the impact that this will have on the broader art market and art world as it pertains to tracking transactions. Um, so that's the first step. And the second step is sort of all of the hurdles that come along with that. So for example, 
if you were to move a good or services or service, uh, let's say a painting, if you were to sell it to someone in an international capacity, you may have to KYC that sale, meaning know your customer. And that person would have to divulge who they are, what country they come from, their address, all of this identifying information. And that for a gallerist who runs a fairly small business, that might be a very like large hurdle to overcome. So for for what we do and what we want to talk to this community about is giving tools and working together with companies that give tools to everyone in the space, from the smallest galleries to the largest, from the smallest collectors to the largest, and the institutions and everything in between. If this system is going to be implemented, it has to be done on a wide basis. All the people have to be bought into it, and there has to be a standardization and an understanding of what these terms mean, KYC, AML, uh, security, not security. Uh, what are the elements of that? How do artists learn to avoid what those things are? So as you can see, this opens up this multitude of education. And then who is going to take on that education? Alex, we've been in these talks together. We met through these WAC talks that we participate in once a week. And a lot of what we've talked about over the last six months has been whose job is it to educate? So those are the issues that we kind of, that I think are the most prevalent um, that are facing the art world and the art market. So you said something that uh, I could almost maybe try to translate and correct me if I'm wrong, is that uh, the crypto NFT market brings more transparency than what we are used to in the traditional art market, which is a little bit of the reverse of some of the marketing speak that we hear around crypto as being more private or more uh, anonymous rather than, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the traditional art market. Well, yes. And that's the irony about this is... If you look at this, I mean, coming back, coming from the investment banking world, there's a part of me that believes it's a little uh, arrogant to say that this is going to be a space where you can move goods and services and exchange money in a totally anonymous way. I think this was a dream that people had, and this would be potentially a, a, a tool that we we could move money in a totally transparent way. But I don't think. I'm sorry, a totally anonymous way, but I don't think that's actually what the tool provides. I think when I look at this space in, in blockchain, in cryptocurrency, and in tokenization of assets in general, and the way those assets move in a global economy, it's not about an anonymity. It really is about transparency and what's called a single source of truth. When you attach data to an asset, whether that be a digital asset or a physical asset, and you track that asset, this changes the way we look at the way that goods and services move on a globalized economy or in a globalized economy. It, it really is a paradigm shift where we're saying, you don't have to look at the people who purchase it. You have to look at where that token is and what it represents and everything that went along with it. And as it moves through this entire ecosystem, let's take, for example, what we see that the, the most important or the most groundbreaking sort of space in the next 12 to 18 months as we move through this crypto winter. Nomic really believes that what we're really going to be doing in the next you know, couple of years is building this end-to-end -end asset management system where the token becomes that single source of truth. Why do we want that? Let's take, for example, ESG or looking at, and this stands for environmental sustainability and governance protocols. You have a furniture company, they want to build a table. 
and that table is made of wood and they make a claim to the public that that table is made from wood that is sustainably sourced. Well, you as a public, you just have to sort of trust that, right? What if you didn't have to trust it? What if the asset itself from the point of inception when that piece was collected in a forest was authenticated as being sustainably sourced and you could track and actually make sure that that wood came from that forest and that those practices were sustainable and that's auditable. And that token follows that wood to the factory where another token is added to that wood, meaning the construction of the object itself. And that factory could be audited for ESG for, you know, how, how fair is the, are the hiring practices? How fair is the work environment in that factory? Uh, intellectual property could be attached to that token. Is this a proprietary build that belongs to this particular furniture company? And all of this information gets brought together in one place, otherwise known as a single source of truth. That table is sold. The person who buys that table sits around that table with their friends for years and they have dinner. And at the end, they grow out of that table. Either it's too small or they just want to give it to their children. And that token removes from their wallet to their children's wallet, or they sell it on Facebook Marketplace. And somebody else buys that token and you know that token enters their wallet. Then you start talking about the economics of memory. Not only could that new buyer track that piece of furniture from its original location and ensure that it was in fact sustainably sourced, But then they could say, wow, this particular person was the first and only owner of that table. And let's say that we were to add pictures to that table or memories or, you know, uh, stories, novels, all of the things that went into that table. You could have people over for dinner and you can say, you're sitting at a table that sat in one family for 40 years. Three children, you know, were raised at that table. They ate at that table. And all of a sudden you start building these relationships to these physical objects that we have in our lives. The reason I bring this up is this isn't just about transparency. This is about building an ecosystem where we have a much more mindful relationship between us and the goods and things and services and the the ways in which we fill our lives with stuff, whether it be digital stuff or physical stuff. In this way, it's not about hiding that I was the person who owned that table. It's a question of Do you want that new person to know that that was you? You can do that. There's something called zero knowledge proofs that allow you to open that door and say, I'm going to tell that person who sat here. I'm going to share all those stories, but you don't have to. It's about choice. And I think if we stop considering this a choice between privacy and anonymity and on the flip side, transparency and opening your life up to the rest of the world, and we talk about it being a choice to do that, then that agency comes back to us as individuals to say, I'm going to enter this ecosystem knowing that I can share as much or little about myself as possible. And the final point about this is at the end of the day, what ends up happening is we have a paradigm shift to us owning our own data, us owning our own memories, which is how we should be thinking about the benefits of this ecosystem. So I don't know if that answers your question comprehensively, but I think it's truly this just total shift of how we think about transparency and anonymity. Yeah, I mean, I think you went beyond answering the question. I really like also the idea of, uh, did you say economy, ec- economy of memories? Um, yes. I think is a really nice, nice idea. Uh, it's definitely a luxury to be able to have that choice. And in a sense, um, we, we've spoken to artists in, in conversations that we've had 
around a deep desire for artists to know the chain of ownership of their work. So uh, in a sense, what, what, what we've heard is that some artists complain that in the secondary market for their traditional artwork, let's say for a painting, they cannot be guaranteed that the next owner of the painting will not be a arms dealer, for example, which could go against their, their ethics. Uh, but it seems to me that in the crypto space, we would not be able to control that either. There's nothing that we can, pro pro there, there's no uh, uh, programming of the smart contracts that we could do that would prevent a certain type of buyer because any buyer can be anonymous by choice, as, as, you, as you described. Would you say that that's accurate? Yes. Hmm. And that is a problem. But it's a problem in the physical space as well. And I think this goes to a major question in this ecosystem of like, we keep assigning these problems to the to tokenomics or to the token ecosystem as if they don't exist already. And I think that doesn't, that should never preclude someone from not entering that space. It should be a question that we continue to bring up and persist in every single stage of development in a new ecosystem. And I think that there from my understanding of the technology, there may be a way to account for that in the future. Now that raises huge, at least legal issues about what it means to own something and to sell something. Uh, if you start policing who your buyer is um, in a secondary and tertiary market, that, that's problematic. So again, these are all things that when we look at this ecosystem, at least from my perspective and Nomic's perspective, we should be questioning literally every step in the process. What has come in the past? What is the ecosystem that we currently have in place for the movement of goods and services in a globalized economy? How much of this do we want to bring with us? How much of it should we look to technology to solve? And how much of it should we look to governance to solve? And governance meaning the laws that govern us and the governance of the token economics in an ecosystem that you choose to participate in or, or sell your art in. Yeah, that makes sense. Maybe before going into some more specific questions that have, let's say, direct um, need for unpacking, such as the concept of securities, for example, I'd love to ask you if if you can tell us roughly, without going into too much detail, what are the general differences between the way the U.S. and maybe it's different state by state uh, tends to regulate NFTs um, and potentially DAOs? versus what's going on in the European Union with Mika and the other sort of regulations that are that are on their way that are sort of still being discussed. Do you have a, a general picture of, of those differences? Yes. So goodness, this is without going into too much detail. Um, so basically Gary Gensler has been very open about his belief that the majority of NFT projects are securities. And when you actually dig into them, most of them are, in fact, securities, if not 99.9% .9 of them. I've seen very few NFT projects that are that at this stage are not securities. Um, and Mika has basically said they're not ready to, at least in my interpretation of reading Mika, it really is not ready to answer on a like broad spectrum whether they are or not securities. They really just say, we're going to look at this on a case-by-case -case basis. Whereas Gary Gensler has basically said, we're going to assume it's a security. It's on you to sort of prove that it's not. Now, he hasn't come out and said that so much as he's regulating by enforcement, which says, I'm coming after you, whether there's laws in place to protect you or outline how this is or is not a security. So then we look towards the artists to educate themselves about, okay, how does 
how our security is defined and how are we going to make sure that we create a thought leadership or a trail, so to speak, of uh, explanation or thought on how this artistic piece came to life or how it was created or how it was delivered to the market and what the actual intention is behind it. That won't save you necessarily, but it might minimize the damage, so to speak. So I, I know that's probably not the answer you wanted to hear because there just really isn't a clear idea yet. But um, I can get into some specifics about how, what is a security and how we can kind of look at this because it makes it a bit more clear. Do you think that would help? Yeah, that definitely. Because what I my understanding of a security so far is that it's something that has to pass the Howey test. Uh, and if I remember correctly, the Howey test is that, or actually, I just pulled it up just to be sure I don't make a mistake. It's an investment of investment of money in a common enterprise with the expectation of profit to be derived from the efforts of others. Um, which in, in, in most cases, I would say of NFT projects, that does seem like it would apply. But is that, do you think that's the right way to define a security? Oh, I'm not going up against that question. <laughs> it's not my job to figure out that's the right or wrong way. But I think, you know, my favorite thing about the Howey test is actually looking at where this came from. Um, this was actually a, a case where there was a plot of land in Florida, I believe, and this plot of land was filled with orange trees. And somebody purchased this plot of land and they said, you know, I can make a lot of money if I harvest these oranges and sell them. Um, but I could also make more money if I fractionalize this land and sell off one one hundredth of the land to Alex. And you know what, Alex, when you buy that one one hundredth part of the land, which has trees on it, I'll farm that land for you and I'll sell those oranges at my expense. And I'll give you a cut of what I make out of that. Now, the question for security becomes, Alex, did you go to that farm and pick those oranges and package those oranges and ship those oranges and create a point of sale system for those oranges? If the answer is no in any part of that process, then you have participated in a security. You have benefited from someone else's work. And if you look at profile picture projects, it is exactly that. We're going to do all the work. We're going to develop everything, but don't you worry. Just you buy one of our PFPs and then we're going to make sure that the price of that PFP or the value of that PFP goes up. And then there's all this question about utility. And it always kind of cracks me up because the utility of PFPs doesn't really matter if the person who's purchasing the PFPs isn't doing anything to make the value of the PFP go up. Now, again, I know that there's probably a bunch of people who would say, well, but they are because they're participating. They're in the Discord channel. They're like talking about it and they're repping it. But how is that any different from Alex going, you going out there and saying, my oranges are the best. They're the absolute best. You can't get better oranges. Were you picking those oranges? If the answer is no, then you are, your utility is minimal to this ecosystem. So I think when we look at PFP projects, it's pretty clear. And I, I find it also a little bit humorous um, that when in 2019, when I first entered this space, and I would bring this, this up at the time, I mean, coming from investment banking, it became it was very clear to me that the majority of these were securities. A lot of artists would say, no, 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 you don't understand. You don't understand. I got told so many times, you don't understand. And the funny part was now that we're on the flip side of this, I have a lot of people saying, well, of course, PFPs were securities, but that's not what we're doing. So, you know, I think as we move into this next phase of and what what the 
art world's trying to figure out, or the art market is trying to figure out what to even call them. A lot of people no longer use NFTs because it's a talk. It's so toxic. Nobody wants to touch it. So you hear like crypto art, which is also kind of humorous because artists who were never crypto artists all of a sudden are just saying, well, now I'm a crypto artist, even though no part of their practice has to do with crypto. So there's this kind of scrambling that's, uh, that I see happening about you know what to even call these things. But th- at the end of the day, the SEC and the regulatory bodies on a global scale do not care what you call them if they function as a security. So it's really about how these things move about the ecosystem and what you're promising is getting sold versus what's actually getting sold and how much of that comes back to you and or your investment pool, so to speak. So if you're, what you're selling is a security and you're being regulated as a security, what does that mean in practice? That means that if you're not registered uh, as a proper, for example, broker dealer, then you are selling unregistered securities in violation of law. And that could open you up to uh, legal action and pretty hefty legal action. Um, and this does not just pertain to the creators of the art. It's as we saw last year with Kim Kardashian, it's those who get paid to talk about that art on social media platforms. It includes getting on a speaking panel and saying, you should buy this project. It's super exciting. Uh, it includes the investors who have front run that project. This was really common in, in 2019, 2020, and 2021, where you would have uh, ultra high net worth individuals funding the projects and saying, you know what, I'm going to buy the first, you know, 5,000, or I'm sorry, 500 PFPs at a certain price. And then we're going to make a, a statement, a, a release a statement to the public saying this is the price they went at. And then everybody else is scrambling saying, oh my God, this is how much they're worth. So this type of front running was quite common. And now the SEC is coming after all of those individuals. You're seeing a lot of actions for those investors as well. Um, and then finally, just the trading. So there was a, a, a quite famous case with Coinbase, where an employee of Coinbase was telling his brother, hey, we're releasing or we're, we're dropping like a an NFT project in the next two days. And basically giving him insider information about when drops were going to happen, which ones he thought were the most popular. And then that his brother would purchase them and then sell them or flip them a couple of days later at an elevated price. And so this type of uh, front running or insider trading is very much uh, punishable by potentially hefty fines. And if it's egregious enough in certain circumstances, um, criminal penalties as well. So if I understand you correctly, uh, and let's say that I'm Yuga Labs or one of these big PFP projects, uh, becoming registered as a as a broker trader of securities is not a small task. I mean, it's something that you, you can't just do that online in five minutes, right? I'm assuming it it does imply quite a bit of uh, paperwork and time, which I, I'm assuming if that's the case would reduce the amount of of these uh, these types of projects would have a much harder time coming out into the world in a legal fashion, right? Correct. Yeah. There are going to what you're going to see is these uh, centralization organiz- or centralized organizations like a Coinbase, for example, or a Kraken, who these are two companies who have really made great efforts to be regulatorily compliant. They have tried to be to get as all of the, the certifications and 
you know, file all their documents and they've tried to cooperate as much as possible. But what we also recently saw from Coinbase was a fairly hefty fine that that Coinbase negotiated with the SEC. I believe it was $100 million, 50 million of which was a fine and 50 was an agreement between the SEC and Coinbase for Coinbase to reinvest that in compliance building, meaning they were going to hire extra personnel and invest more money in being more compliant. So you're going to see that there are a couple of companies that rise to the top that are able to provide these types of um, ecosystems or marketplaces for the trading of what are known as securities. Now, the problem with that is that I don't think there's a lot of artists. And maybe, Alex, I'd love to hear your opinion about this. How many artists want to be selling something that so clearly is a commoditized asset that it trades in a regulated marketplace, like financial marketplace? I I truly don't think that's what the art world wants from this tool. Do you? No, I don't. Uh, I, I think that the the one thing that could happen is that we say these are securities, but then the SEC or whichever regulatory body you you fall under loosens the meaning of 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 uh, reg- regulating securities, and maybe you don't. Maybe they make it easier. Let, let let's say we all agree. Okay, this is a security, but to be allowed to sell securities is going to be much easier than it was last year or 10 years ago. Um, Because I think that there are a lot of these legal constructs, such as copyright, for example, or securities in this case, that feel like they come from another time that don't really apply to the speed and the type of creative output that we see today. And so, in essence, it's like, you know, a lot of laws that, that are old dusty laws that that don't really make sense but they still are applied and i think that you know because we know that regulatory bodies and you know legal uh, deciders move very very slowly it's not likely that we're going to see that soon but hopefully it's it's the kind of thing that could happen and i don't know if that's even within the realm of the possible but hopefully i'm glad you brought that up because i don't disagree with you i do think that we're at a place where the laws that we have in place are no longer fitting the actual way in which we live our lives. I think that's a huge problem and it's going to accelerate. I think when we go back and we talk about uh, the speed of technological innovation that is occurring, we are not, this is not going to slow down. It's going to accelerate to such a place, especially with what we're seeing with AI, that these laws are going to just fail miserably to meet the needs of the population who participates in these systems. This is doubly a problem or triply a problem when you talk about artists who the majority of their work or their time should be dedicated to developing art, right? Their their practice. They shouldn't need to look all the time at these very complex laws. But we have to look at what the, the reason for the laws, like why why do these laws exist and what are they meant to protect? According to the SEC, the laws surrounding securities are not about trying to make it prohibitively difficult to bring a security to market. It's about the investor. And I think we can actually look to to what would happen with FTX to know why. So it's not, I mean, everybody on earth knows what Hussein Bankman-Fried is and what he did with FTX. But the question is really, not necessarily about him himself. It was what did this company tell the public about what they were selling versus what they were actually selling? 
the, there's been a lot. I mean, I love the, the name of this, this podcast because really the focus of what happened with FTX was about the terms of service and the terms of use. Because the terms of service said, we will not be using your assets to fund Alameda Research. We won't be commingling your assets. We're going to be, when you deposit your assets, those belong to you. But that's not actually what was happening. That crux right there is the reality of why the SEC exists. Every single time you go back and you look at Bernie Madoff, you look at Sam Bankman-Fried, you look at all of the types of securities fraud that we've seen that have sharpened and made these laws as razor sharp as they are. All of the reason for that was you have somebody here who's greedy, who wants to sell you something and is telling you all of this great guarantee and there's there's zero risk and everything's going to be great. And then the person that purchases it has lost money. So these laws, when you look at them carefully, are meant to protect the retail investor. And when you look at what happened with NFT projects, a good number of them dare I say the majority of them that were released to market in the last three years, the things that were promised were not delivered. And that you don't even have to go too much further than, uh, you know, Yuga Labs. Board Apes Yacht Club was making promises left and right about, you know, video games and ecosystems and community gatherings. But everybody I've ever spoke to who went to a community gathering for Board Apes Yacht Club said every, there was a bunch of people here and there was no there there. We just hung out and that was it. And then they went home. Like, what are you paying for? So I think I'd like to believe that we can evolve past a place where we no longer need these laws, but I just don't think so. I think the reality of human greed and the likelihood that there will be another, like I, without a doubt, 100% guarantee Sam is not the last one. And there will, with, with decentralization, there will be more and more, and I think we don't have to look too much further than our own inboxes, that how much of us, how many of us receive phone calls or get emails from scams on a daily basis. So these laws are not just going to be continue to exist. They will get worse. They will get more complex and they will start to encompass the digital space that we live, that you and I live our lives in. So I think it's, it's not even a question. We can't assume that this isn't going to, that this is going to go away. It will morph and we, we have to educate ourselves. That's the only way to sort of, to fight that is through education. Yeah, no, I hundred percent agree with you. I think uh, the, the, the difficult thing, difficult phase that we are in right now is that things are a little vague. And as you said, maybe the SEC is, is regulating by enforcement in Europe. The Mika framework is still kind of uh, unclear vague. in it's vague in Belgium. We have this interesting concept of putting, if you are a, what, what we, what we call a good, uh, like sort of, uh, in French, we say père de famille, which means a, a family man. If you invest like a family man, which means that you buy some cryptocurrencies, but you're not just trading uh, as a professional trader, then you fall under different regulatory framework. But it's also very vague. Like at what point are you no longer a good family man and, and sort of somewhere between it? So, so a lot of this stuff is hard to decode. And some people will, of course, prefer to be taking more risks and other less risks. So it, it doesn't help that we're uh, that all of this is sort of you know in this vague phase right now. One of the examples of this that came up for me recently was that I was working on a project, and uh, one of the let's say developers said, "We cannot sell these NFTs for this project without requiring KYC." And I said, "Can you show me?" The legal framework that says that in Europe you cannot sell an NFT without 
showing without having KYC. He said, no, because I'm actually I'm basing myself on some new legal framework that's being developed in Liechtenstein, and this is going to be what Mika will end up integrating. They said, well, so you're basically talking about a potential future, but because of that, you know, the barrier of entry to this NFT project was way too high because most people would not want to KYC just to buy, you know, this this or that NFT. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about what the status of KYC is, uh, you know, as much as as you can share both, I guess, in Europe and, and in the States. So I want to bring up two things before I get to the status, the current status of KYC. I very much now to take a step back, I, I actually call myself these days a legal engineer because what I realize this space actually needs is building products that are legal by design. So I actually 100% am on board with whoever this person that you were speaking to is doing. Because if you think about the minimal resources that most of these projects have to bring a product to market, and then you think about the regulatory risk involved with building a non-compliant product and the ability of a regulatory body to step in and decimate your entire business plan or your entire product just by saying you have to KYC... I think you're going to see a lot more people being willing to comply before compliance is regulatory necessary. Um, I think KYC is coming across the board. And I think if you look at what's happening with DID, meaning decentralized identifiers, we're really kind of separating out the token as the asset and the token as the identifier. And there's, you've heard, I mean, I've seen at least a very, like an uptick in reference to what Vitalik Buterin of Ethereum calls a soulbound token. Now, the reason I bring this up is KYC is about know your customer. And it's part of um, a, a regime that was entered, you know, around 2001 after, uh, you know, 9-11. And I mean, it was always kind of a, a thing within banks. Like banks really needed you to know who your customer was, who is depositing money into these banks. But at some point, you know, the, the US government said, well, with the with digital money or the movement of of money through technology we're going to need to build an infrastructure to know where that money is coming from and to be able to flag money that potentially could be used to fund terrorism or to money launder and so they increased the regula- regulators in the US increased the um, standards or the minimum like information that a bank needed to know in order to facilitate a bank transfer in a global economy. And so American banks started saying, okay, fine, in order to do business with you, we need to KYC you. And I'll tell you, I'll give you a personal anecdote. A couple of years ago, I traveled with some friends to Colombia and a friend of mine who's Colombian said, you know what, I'll make all the arrangements. I'll put all the payments down. You guys just wire me the money. And I have to tell you, it was a bear getting money sent to Colombia. I think we sent like eight or eight or $900. And my bank, it took, I think, three weeks, several different international phone calls with myself, my friend, and both of our banks on the line. And, you know, I would say probably 50 or $60 worth of like phone fees on actually just getting this money there when I could have just brought cash with me on the plane and just given it to him or like withdrawn it from an ATM when I was there. It almost was just not worth it. And so this is uh, the sort of underpinnings of what KYC was meant or like what why it was brought to life. So if you can see now that the NFT projects have had so much history of like money laundering and rug pulls and all this other stuff that's associated with, with these NFT projects, I'm not surprised that people are starting to say like, this is what 
we're just going to create KYC. We're going to create legal by design from the get-go. Um, so I don't know, like, I'd like to ask before I sort of get to that, what the current KYC status is, what your thoughts are on saying, you know, there would be this barrier to entry. Don't we want that barrier to entry to legitimize this market? Yeah, for sure. I think the the issue that I've seen with uh, KYC, for example, with, uh, let's say, exchanges like Coinbase or Kraken, is that they tend to be a little wonky. So, for example, you upload your ID and then they're like, oh, we didn't recognize your ID. Could you send another ID? And we'll get back to you in two days. And and I think it's maybe just the mechanics of the KYC that seem to be faulty. If like if KYC was a very uh, efficient kind of smooth process, I think there would be more. Uh, it would be easier for people to adopt it. But I still haven't seen a proper KYC onboarding that 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 went smoothly and didn't take too long. So that's my issue with KYC. I think it's just that the the you know the the back end of it is 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 not quite there. When it comes to how it affects the adoption of an NFT project, uh, I I do agree with you. I think it's definitely better, but I think it also depends a little bit on the project and the volume. You know, like if you're selling a a very small project, to, you know, maybe you do one on uh, one on ones or or very very small additions. You know, it it might be a little bit too much to ask for someone to set up some kind of KYC. So, you know, TBD, I think th those are, there, there are some cases where it's very valid in some cases where I would say it's, it's a little overkill. Um, but, you know, the, the other thing I think that's, that's an, a big topic right now, that's kind of unclear and that's not really related to KYC, but it's falls, I think under a similar, uh, let's say vagueness when it comes to uh, NFTs is the issue of copyright. Um, and we've had conversations with copyright lawyers here in Belgium around those questions. And the, similarly, what, what we tend to get as a final answer after a lot of you know, questions is that it's also unclear um, in a sense, what kind of, in other words, it is clear that copyright applies but it's not clear how it gets enforced um, because there is no clear way to go and say, well, you copied this from me, so you should not be able to sell it because I can sell you a NFT directly. And I could have just scanned a picture from a book and told you I made this and you could believe me and then find out later that it's an, it's a copy that is uh, illegal. Um, but there is no sort of enforcement of, of, uh, of copyright. And I don't really see how that could happen in a decentralized market because you know maybe marketplaces could enforce it and have sort of computer vision tools that would be able to identify that something that you you're selling is actually not original but if i'm selling directly to you i don't see how that could be enforced i want to address first this issue you brought up with kyc and the the barriers to entry because i can tell you just from my own perspective having worked at an exchange or you know on a, on a lending platform what was happening and why it took so long. Most companies in this space are outsourcing their KYC. And there are companies that give you KYC products where your, your customer submits that identifying document, whether it be biometric information or um, you know an address, phone number, et cetera, um, whatever the minimum KYC requirements are for that platform. And then they do the, the verification. Now, I have seen this go terribly wrong, unfortunately, because the, the question becomes, does this, this exchange or marketplace 
actually audit that subcontractor and what verifications is that subcontractor using? What databases are, are they dipping into? And again, this goes back to the DID conversation. It's, it's an, it, KYC right now is a very it's an imperfect science. And there are companies that are popping up that are issuing what's called KYCT, KYCT otherwise known as K, KYC tokens. They're analogous to DIDs in the sense that you get a KYC token and now you can take that token to potentially other marketplaces to say, I've been KYC'd. So you reduce that friction to entry in all of those marketplaces. I mean, quite frankly, I'm somebody who, as a regulatory attorney, I love regulation. <laughs> I think that regulation is a good thing in everything in moderation, of course. Like I don't want to stifle innovation at all. But I think that you know, as we start to think about the ways in which fraud is happening on a global scale and the amount of fraud in every aspect of our lives is is just enormous. So anytime that we can put in place things to reduce fraud and protect our most vulnerable customers, our retail customers, that's a good thing. So um, I, I hope that that kind of gives you a little bit of potential background on where, where that two-day delay came from, because it's, it is, it's ridiculous and it shouldn't be that way. Yeah, for sure. No, and I, I assume so much. I just felt, and I also, you know, uh, I, I moved from the United States to Europe, and then I had to re KYC because I didn't have the same bank as before. And I'm like, I'm still the same person, you know. I just have a different financial institution, and so they're, oh well, you can no longer transfer money from a U.S. account, but I'm still a U.S. citizen. So you know, I feel like in a sense, there's a rigidity there that's that's a little stifling. But I'm sure that it's also, you know, uh, out of uh, an abundance of of precaution, uh, and and of course, people want to make sure that this money is is not, mm, you know, being laundered or there's some uh, some some strange uh, business going on. But in the same time, I think, yeah, the KYC process needs to get smoother for sure. And I like this idea of the KYC token. I think if we could get to something like that, you KYC once and that's it, that would be amazing. Well, and I think there's a lot of people who are working towards that. Yeah. I think the DID market is going to be one of the next big um, places of build that you're going to see. I know that TBD, uh, the company, it's a subsidiary of Block. Um, and I not very many people know much about TBD, but if you go and read the TBD white paper, they talk a lot about how DIDs are going to be the entry to the, the digital asset marketplace in the future. And it makes sense. And But they talk about it in a much more extensive way. Um, and I think this actually lends itself to this, this move into the, um, the copyright conversation, because I think we're just, this space is so new and it's in its infancy. So you have a lot of companies that are trying to solve these problems and a lot of duplicates. I mean, the artwork alone, I have met with so many different blockchains all of whom claim that theirs is the solution and their metadata is the solution and their certificate of authenticity is the solution and nobody else can do it better. Alex, if I had a dime for every single time I met with a, a young artist or a young entrepreneur in this ecosystem who said, I'm the first, and I have to be like, no, you're actually the third today. And they're like, but I'm the first doing this with this. And I'm like, no, you're the second of that today and the fifth this week. So just let's get to the idea, right? Like, and I'm not saying that to like d diminish that these people are very energetic and they're eager, but this is so much a uh, just a replication of what we saw in 2000 and 2001 in, in the tech bubble, right? And 
I bring this up because what we're going to see in terms of DIDs, what we're going to see in terms of copyright is that there will be standardization, but it's going to be a process that is in conjunction with the, the legislature. Like this is really going to be about, okay, how are we going to deal with these things uh, in a way that gives the most amount of protection to the most amount of people. Now, I'm not a copyright expert. I'll put that out there. Whenever I do copyrights with artists, I actually work with other lawyers who that's their area of expertise because it is so uh, complex. And, you know, I I think a lot of people believe that lawyers should like know all of the different areas, but it's like talk saying a surgeon should be able to be, you know, a a dentist, like the very, very different areas of law. Um, So what I, what I do think though, is that copyright represents the same problem that DIDs represent. You have this unique thing and this thing needs to be protected and you have to show this is this thing or this idea or this writing or this painting or whatever that thing is, is so unique that it should be given its own status and that the person who created it should have enjoy the benefits of bringing that thing to life. Um, I think that's the same as saying like I as an individual have output in my life and I have accomplishments in my life that I should have access to at any given time that should be identified and soul bound to me. One great example of this that that is brought up in in TBD's marketing or their information about their DID is uh, the idea of um, tokenizing diplomas. Now I'm sitting in my home office where I have my two diplomas on the wall here and they're framed thanks to a gift from my wonderful parents. And they look all pretty and professional. And I paid a lot of money for them because in America, we pay a lot of money for our degrees. I'm still paying a lot of money for them. And so I look at these pieces of paper and for me, they represent very much this like hard work that I put in. But if I go to apply for a job, for example, in Germany, and I were to get that job in order to get a visa, I actually have to get a copy of that diploma, a physical copy of it. If I apply for a certain type of visa that's attached to a professional capacity and send them a copy of my diploma. And so what DIDs aim to do is actually take that diploma and give you a soul bound diploma token that gets added to your DID so that when you apply for jobs, you are able to open that gate and that other person on the other side sees, no, this was a token. It was issued by that university. So I think what I'm trying to say is when we look at copyrights, when we look at all of these really unique objects, these digital objects that represent either physical objects or ownership over some asset of some kind, that you're going to see some standardization. It's going to be a question of who's in the right place at the right time. What company has the amount of capital to push this into the sort of the, the ecosystem in a massive way? I think a company like Block is uniquely positioned to do that because they have Square as a part of their their um, their ecosystem. Um, Cash App is a part of the, the Block ecosystem. So if you think about like the ability to issue a DID to every single person who uses Square, every merchant who uses Square, and every person who uses Cash App, that's actually quite a large variety of people on a global scale. Then if they were to take that and plug and play that into an OpenSea, for example, so that you wouldn't need to KYC anymore, you would have a DID that was KYC'd, and then you can operate in these all these different ecosystems. That's what's, that, that is what it's going to take. And the same thing with copyright. You're going to have some sort of infrastructure that's built that allows these objects to be what they say they are and create that single source of truth we mentioned in the beginning of the call. Yeah, I really like that. I think this all this sort of... Um... Uh, identity stuff that's going on 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 the blockchain. I know there's soulbound tokens. There are also other ideas. Uh, you might have heard of the Disco 
uh, team that's that has a completely different concept for for DID. So it's really exciting to see that happen because I agree. Like I, I read today that the uh, the Department of Motor Vehicles in California is starting to explore uh, uh, blockchain based sort of identifiers. So if you could have your driver's license on the blockchain and you didn't have to go to the DMV every time you lost it or you needed a, a new one, that would that would be massive. Um, so yeah, I think all of that is is a really interesting uh, development. Um, so maybe I know there's like a ton of stuff that we could still talk about, but in in closing, there's like one question that I'd, I'd like to ask you is in your line of work and sort of in the projects that you're dealing with, what is the most salient issue from a legal perspective that you have to deal with and that you would like to see improved? Like we've talked about quite a few, but which one is the most urgent and that you feel you can see um, a sort of maybe a light at the end of the tunnel in terms of of it getting better? This idea of legal by design. I think that you bring up a great question. And I think what I believe the biggest protection that artists and artist ecosystems can do for themselves is to start looking at ways in which to make their product legal by design. And there are so many companies, one of whom um, a, a very dear friend now um, founded a company called Kayaks out of the UK. It's Know Your Digital Assets. And essentially, it's an embedded uh sort of protocol that allows you to uh, report your assets in a regulatorily compliant way. And this is a plug and play solution. And then you've got, you know, KYC plug and play solutions. So I think the regulators around the world are no longer going to accept this idea. Oh, we're new. You know, we can't comply because it's too complicated and we're too new and just give us a little bit of time. That's not an ex that's not an acceptable excuse. That time is over. And so these newer players to the market need to start looking for these plug and play solutions. There are plenty out there, but you do also have to vet them. And so at that time, when you take this 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 product to market and you've created as legally compliant at the base layer as you possibly can, this allows you to take the rest of your time and focus on the actual art, on the actual production of the things that you're selling or purchasing or creating, um, which is where really this should, what this should be about. This should be a technology that allows for artists to not only create more work that is truly about who they are and allow them to explore, but then to take advantage of those secondary and tertiary market sales so that they can actually have a livable wage. Because if we bring it back to that, that's what this is was, this was the promise of NFTs when the, the art market first started to move into this space. I just don't think that there was enough conversation in those early stages about what this ecosystem wanted from this technology. So what ended up happening is you had these players on the outside, these finance bros and tech bros who were creating all of these finance projects that were clouded or like called NFT projects. And they were just adding pictures to them as a means to move money about and to make money and create arbitrage, right? And that ended up being the narrative. So there was a vacuum in the art world of actual discussion about like, let's take a look at this. But now that discussion has started to happen over the last year. You have, you know, major players in the space who have been talking about this, Christiana Paul being one of them, you know, she's wrote, literally wrote the book on digital art, um, really having these conversations and saying, look, no, I've been talking about this. This is how this should be looked at. This is not new. We don't need to panic. We don't need to rewrite the book, right? So as long as the plat platforms are really taking regulation seriously, building things legal by design, the artists can then have this discourse 
the, the people in the ecosystem can make decisions about you know what this thing is and what value it brings to the ecosystem and this will allow for everyone to benefit in a more fundamental way as opposed to challenging things that they they should never no artist should ever be thinking is gary gensler going to be knocking on my front door that's just not what this is about so um i think platforms that's what i would like to see is platforms really taking that responsibility what about you what are you the most excited about from a legal perspective, what you just said sounds really interesting. I actually had never thought about it. I have heard about this one tool that I, I you know, I've been sort of trying to think about uh, the legal framework around DAOs, which we didn't really get a chance to talk about. Um, and I recently heard about this this platform called Kali.gg, and essentially offers you a series of different wrappers, uh, legal wrappers for your DAO. And so what it allows you to do is to essentially pick, okay, do I need to be a foundation, an LLC, or a nonprofit? And they sort of do all of that uh, wrapping of the DAO within the, the correct legal framework, which I think is the kind of thing that removes so much of a headache because as a founder of a DAO, the last thing you want to do is, 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 is be in doubt about something that has nothing to do with the mission of your project, right? And I think, as you said, if you are an artist, if you're able to have some kind of non, hopefully non-centralized service that provides you with the kind of legal protection around your project so you can sleep at night knowing that um, you've done everything in a way that doesn't put you in jeopardy legally, that's a great, that's a great outcome, I think. I think the main thing is that these things do not become, you know, that's where block to me is a little scary in a sense. It's Jack Dorsey's business, it's part of Jack Dorsey's empire. I know Jack Dorsey has, I hope, has good intentions, but it would worry me that there would be one company that would sort of have the monopoly of digital identity because then if they fail, then the whole idea fails again. And that's that's problematic. So, um, you know, I think th that, that sounds like a really interesting idea. Uh, the other thing to me that I'm just looking forward to is having more of these kinds of conversations, which come back to education, as, as you said. Uh, where we can actually bring these topics up in a way that is not uh, confrontational because it often tends to be like people tend to stick to their position and say, no, it's like this or, or you know, in my country, it's like that. And that's the only way that I operate. And I think being able to explore and push, let's say, the, the questions to a point where the answer becomes clear, which I think it, it always ends up being the case. Um, that's that's to be encouraged. So I would say those those conversations are are things that I look forward to. So thank you very much for having. Oh, one I of have those. to tell you, <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, you're not wrong that block is a bit scary, and any time that a company has the ability to change an ecosystem as large as what they could potentially do, it should be questioned. And I think the, the final thing I'll say about what 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 you brought up with DAOs and uh, what this space could be. I think the most successful and exciting projects I've seen are coming from people who can take a 5,000 foot view of systems so that they're not being blinded by the, for lack of a better word, indoctrination of having grown up in one system and believing that that's the only or best way to do it. Those who really can make a change are, are rising up and saying, okay, what are all the ecosystems that are involved in this? And how can we pick and choose the ones that best fit the purpose or the, the mission of all of this. And I, yes, DAOs are such an amazing conversation. I wish we had gotten a bit more into them because DAOs really do represent 
a totally new way of looking at organizations of individuals who want to build in a borderless society. And they're scary. So the one thing I'll say about DAOs is, you know, I'm really excited to see companies build them, but they there is no actual legal infrastructure in most jurisdictions for them. So whether or not you come to an agreement and whether or not that agreement is rock solid may not matter if what you're actually doing is building a general partnership, which means that every single person who is a member of that DAO is liable for what happens for everything that happens to the DAO. Dangerous, dangerous possibilities. But once the infrastructure is built for DAOs, they're going to be powerful vehicles to do exactly what we talked about. So I look forward to seeing those. I look forward to many more conversations uh, with you about what DAOs can do because it's a really exciting time. And thank you so much, Alex, for having me. I've loved our conversation um, and look forward to hearing many more from you and your team. Thank you. And uh, yeah, we'll have to have you back once we get to DAOs. And I'm sure that we I'm in. get there soon. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us. And it was really great. Uh, and we'll talk to you soon. Absolutely.